0: Third Section of Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysic of Morals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alexandre Laplante. Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysic of Morals by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. Third Section. Transition from Popular Moral Philosophy to the Metaphysic of Morals, Part 2 On the other hand, the question how the imperative of morality is possible is undoubtedly one, the only one, demanding a solution, as this is not at all hypothetical, and the objective necessity which it presents cannot rest on any hypothesis, as is the case with the hypothetical imperatives only here we must never leave out of consideration that we cannot make out by any example in other words empirically whether there is such an imperative at all but it is rather to be feared that all those which seem to be categorical may yet be at bottom hypothetical for instance when the precept is thou shalt not promise deceitfully and it is assumed that the necessity of this is not a mere counsel to avoid some other evil so that it should mean thou shalt not make a lying promise, lest if it become known, thou shouldst destroy thy credit, but that an action of this kind must be regarded as evil in itself, so that the imperative of the prohibition is categorical, then we cannot show with certainty, in any example, that the will was determined merely by the law, without any other spring of action, although it may appear to be so. For it is always possible that fear of disgrace perhaps also obscure dread of other dangers, may have a secret influence on the will. Who can prove by experience the non-existence of a cause when all that experience tells us is that we do not perceive it? But in such a case the so-called moral imperative, which as such appears to be categorical and unconditional, would in reality be only a pragmatic precept, drawing our attention to our own interests and merely teaching us to take these into consideration. We shall therefore have to investigate a priori the possibility of a categorical imperative, as we have not in this case the advantage of its reality being given in experience, so that the elucidation of its possibility should be requisite only for its explanation, not for its establishment. In the meantime, it may be discerned beforehand that the categorical imperative alone has the purport of a practical law. All the rest may indeed be called principles of the will, but not laws, since whatever is only necessary for the attainment of some arbitrary purpose may be considered as in itself contingent, and we can at any time be free from the precept if we give up the purpose. On the contrary, the unconditional command leaves the will no liberty to choose the opposite. Consequently, it alone carries with it that necessity which we require in a law. Secondly, In the case of this categorical imperative, or law of morality, the difficulty of discerning its possibility is a very profound one. It is an a priori synthetical practical proposition, and as there is so much difficulty in discerning the possibility of speculative propositions of this kind, it may readily be supposed that the difficulty will be no less with the practical. Footnote I connect the act with the will without presupposing any condition resulting from any inclination, but a priori, and therefore necessarily, though only objectively, i.e. assuming the idea of a reason possessing full power over all subjective motives. This is accordingly a practical proposition, which does not deduce the willing of an action by mere analysis from another already presupposed, for we have not such a perfect will, but it connects it immediately with the conception of the will of a rational being as something not contained in it End of in this problem we will first inquire whether the mere conception of a categorical imperative may not perhaps supply us also with the formula of it containing the proposition which alone can be a categorical imperative for even if we know the tenure of such an absolute command yet how it is possible we require further special and laborious study, which we postpone to the last section. When I conceive a hypothetical imperative, in general I do not know beforehand what it will contain until I am given the condition. But when I conceive a categorical imperative, I know at once what it contains, for as the imperative contains, beside the law, only the necessity that the maxims shall conform to this law, while the law contains no conditions restricting it, there remains nothing but the general statement that the maxim of the action should conform to a universal law, and it is this conformity alone that the imperative properly represents as necessary. Footnote. A maxim is a subjective principle of action, and must be distinguished from the objective principle, namely, practical law. The former contains the practical rule set by reason according to the conditions of the subject, often its ignorance or its inclinations, so that it is the principle on which the subject acts, but the law is the objective principle valid for every rational being, and is the principle on which it ought to act, that is an imperative. End of footnote. There is therefore but one categorical imperative, namely this act only on that maxim whereby thou canst at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Now if all imperatives of duty can be deduced from this one imperative as from their principle, then although it should remain undecided what is called duty is not merely a vain notion, yet at least we shall be able to show what we understand by it and what this notion means. Since the universality of the law according to which effects are produced constitutes what is properly called nature in the most general sense, as to form, that is, the existence of things so far as it is determined by general laws, the imperative of duty may be expressed thus. Act as if the maxim of thy action were to become by thy will a universal law of nature we will now enumerate a few duties adopting the usual division of them into duties to ourselves and ourselves and to others and into perfect and imperfect duties footnote it must be noted here that i reserve the division of duties for a future metaphysic of morals so that i give it here only as an arbitrary one in order to arrange my examples for the rest i understand by a perfect duty one that admits no exception in favor of inclination, and then I have not merely external but also internal perfect duties. This is contrary to the use of the word adopted in the schools, but I do not intend to justify there, as it is all one for my purpose whether it is admitted or not. End of footnote. Number 1. A man reduced to despair by a series of misfortunes feels wearied of life, but is still so far in possession of his reason that he can ask himself whether it would be contrary to his duty to himself to take his own life. Now he inquires whether the maxim of his action could become a universal law of nature. His maxim is, For self-love, I adopt it as a principle to shorten my life when its longer duration is likely to bring more evil than satisfaction. It is asked then simply whether this principle founded on self-love can become a universal law of nature. Now we see at once that a system of nature which it should be a law to destroy life, by means of the very feeling whose special nature it is to impel to the improvement of life, would contradict itself, and therefore could not exist as a system of nature. Hence that maxim cannot possibly exist as a universal law of nature, and consequently, would be wholly inconsistent with the supreme principle of all duty. Number 2. Another finds himself forced by necessity to borrow money. He knows that he will not be able to repay it, but sees also that nothing will be lent to him unless he promises stoutly to repay it in a definite time. He desires to make this promise, but he has still so much conscience as to ask himself, Is it not unlawful and inconsistent with duty to get out of a difficulty in this way? Suppose, however, that he resolves to do so. Then the maxim of his action would be expressed thus. When I think myself in want of money, I will borrow money and promise to repay it, although I know that I never can do so. Now this principle of self-love or of one's own advantage may perhaps be consistent with my whole future welfare, but the question now is is it right i change then the suggestion of self-love into a universal law and state the question thus how would it be if my maxim were a universal law then i see at once that it could never hold as a universal law of nature but would necessarily contradict itself for supposing it to be a universal law that every one, when he thinks himself in a difficulty, should be able to promise whatever he pleases with the purpose of not keeping his promise. The promise itself would become impossible, as well as the end that one might have in view in it, since no one would consider that anything was promised to him, but would ridicule all such statements as vain pretenses. Number 3. A third finds in himself a talent, which, with the help of some culture, might make him a useful man in many respects. But he finds himself in comfortable circumstances, and prefers to indulge in pleasure rather than to take pains in enlarging and improving his happy natural capacities. He asks, however, whether his maxim of neglect of his natural gifts, besides agreeing with his inclination to indulgence, agrees also with what is called duty. He sees then that a system of nature could indeed subsist with such a universal law, although men, like South Sea Islanders, should let their talents rest and resolve to devote their lives merely to idleness, amusement, and propagation of their species, in a word, to enjoyment. But he cannot possibly will that this should be a universal law of nature, or be implanted in us as such by a natural instinct, for, as a rational being, he necessarily wills that his faculties be developed, since they serve him and have been given him for all sorts of possible purposes. Number 4. A fourth, who is in prosperity, while he sees that others have to contend with great wretchedness and that he could help them, thinks, What concern is it of mine? Let everyone be as happy as heaven pleases, or as he can make himself. I will take nothing from him nor even envy him, only I do not wish to contribute anything to his welfare or to his assistance in distress. Now, no doubt if such a mode of thinking were a universal law, the human race might very well subsist, and doubtless even better than in a state in which everyone talks of sympathy and goodwill, or even to take care occasionally to put it into practice, but, on the other side, also cheats when he can, betrays the rights of men, or otherwise violates them. But although it is possible that a universal law of nature might exist in accordance with that maxim, it is impossible to will that such a principle should have the universal validity of a law of nature. For a will which resolved this would contradict itself, inasmuch as many cases might occur in which one would have need of love and sympathy of others, and in which, by such a law of nature, sprung from his own will, he would deprive himself of all hope of the aid he desires. These are a few of the many actual duties or at least what we regard as such, which obviously fall into two classes, on the one principle that we have laid down. We must be able to will that a maxim of our action should be a universal law. This is the canon of the moral appreciation of the action generally. Some actions are of such a character that their maxim cannot without contradiction be even conceived as a universal law of nature, far from it being possible that we should will that it should be so. In others, this intrinsic impossibility is not found, but still it is impossible to will that their maxim should be raised to the universality of a law of nature, since such a will would contradict itself. It is easily seen that the former violates strict or rigorous, inflexible duty, the latter only laxer meritorious duty. Thus it has been completely shown how all duties depend as regards the nature of the obligation, not the object of the action, on the same principle. If we now attend to ourselves on occasion of any transgression of duty, we shall find that we in fact do not will that our maxim should be a universal law, for that is impossible for us. On the contrary, we will that the opposite should remain a universal law, only we assume the liberty of making an exception in our own favour or, just for this time only, in favour of our inclination. Consequently, if we considered all cases from one and the same point of view, namely, that of reason, we should find a contradiction in our own will, namely, that a certain principle should be objectively necessary as a universal law, and yet subjectively should not be universal, but admit of exceptions. As, however, we at one moment regard our action from the point of view of a will wholly conformed to reason, and then again look at the same action from the point of view of a will affected by inclination, there is not really any contradiction, but an antagonism of inclination to the precept of reason, whereby the universality of the principle is changed into a mere generality, so that the practical principle of reason shall meet the maxim half-way. Now, although this cannot be justified in our own impartial judgment, yet it proves that we do really recognize the validity of the categorical imperative, and, with all respect for it, only allow ourselves a few exceptions which we think unimportant and forced from us. We have thus established at least this much, that if duty is a conception which is to have any import and real legislative authority for our actions, it can only be expressed in categorical and not at all in hypothetical imperatives. We have also, which is of great importance, exhibited clearly and definitely, for every practical application, the content of the categorical imperative, which must contain the principle of all duty, if there is such a thing at all. We have not yet, however, advanced so far as to prove a priori that there actually is such an imperative, that there is a practical law which commands absolutely of itself, and without any other impulse, and that the following of this law is duty." With the view of attaining to this, it is of extreme importance to remember that we must not allow ourselves to think of deducing the reality of this principle from the particular attributes of human nature. For duty is to be a practical, unconditional necessity of action. It must therefore hold for all rational beings to whom an imperative can apply at all, and for this reason only be also a law for all human wills. On the contrary, whatever is deduced from the particular natural characteristics of humanity, from certain feelings and propensions, nay, even, if possible, from any particular tendency proper to human reason, and which need not necessarily hold for the wills of every rational being, this may indeed supply us with a maxim, but not with a law. With a subjective principle on which we may have a propension and inclination to act, but not with an objective principle on which we should be enjoined to act, even though all our propensions, inclinations, and natural dispositions were opposed to it. In fact, the sublimely and intrinsic dignity of our command and duty are so much the more evident, the less the subjective impulses favour it, and the more they oppose it, without being able in the slightest degree to weaken the obligation of the law or to diminish its validity. Here, then, we see philosophy brought to a critical position, since it has to be firmly fixed, notwithstanding that it has nothing to support it in heaven or earth. Here it must show its purity as absolute director of its own laws, not the herald of those which are whispered to it by an implanted sense, or who knows what tutelary nature. Although these may be better than nothing, yet they can never afford principles dictated by reason which must have their source wholly a priori and hence their commanding authority expecting everything from the supremacy of the law and the due respect for it nothing from inclination or else condemning the man to self-contempt and inwards abhorrence thus every empirical element is not only quite incapable of being an aid to the principle of morality but is even highly prejudicial to the purity of morals For the proper and inestimable worth of an absolutely good will consists just in this, that the principle of action is free from all influence and contingent grounds, which alone experience can furnish. We cannot too much or too often repeat our warning against this lax and even mean habit of thought, which seeks for its principle amongst empirical motives and laws. For human reason in its weariness is glad to rest on this pillow, and in a dream of sweet illusions in which instead of juno it embraces a cloud it substitutes for morality a bastard patched up from limbs of various derivation which looks like anything one chooses to see in it only not like virtue to one who has once beheld her in her true form footnote to behold virtue in her proper form is nothing else but to contemplate morality stripped of all admixture of sensible things and of every spurious ornament of reward or self-love. How much she then eclipses everything else that appears charming to the affections, every one may readily perceive with the least exertion of his reason if it be not wholly spoiled for abstraction. End of footnote. The question, then, is this. Is it a necessary law for all rational beings that they should always judge of their actions by maxims of which they can themselves will that they should serve as universal laws? If it is so, then it must be connected, altogether a priori, with the very conception of the will of a rational being generally. But in order to discover this connection, we must, however reluctantly, take a step into metaphysic, although into a domain of it which is distinct from speculative philosophy, namely, the metaphysic of morals. In practical philosophy, where it is not the reasons of what happens that we have to ascertain, but the laws of what ought to happen, even although it never does, i.e., objective practical laws, there it is not necessary to inquire into reasons why anything pleases or displeases, how the pleasure of mere sensation differs from taste, and whether the latter is distinct from a general satisfaction of reason, on what the feeling of pleasure or pain rests, and how from it desires and inclinations arise, and from these again maxims by the cooperation of reason. For all this belongs to an empirical psychology, which would constitute the second part of physics, if we regard physics as the philosophy of nature, so far as it is based on empirical laws." But here we are concerned with objective practical laws, and, consequently, with the relation of the will to itself so far as it is determined by reason alone, in which case whatever has reference to anything empirical is necessarily excluded, since if reason of itself alone determines the conduct, and it is the possibility of this that we are now investigating, it must necessarily do so a priori. The will is conceived as a faculty of determining oneself to action, in accordance with the conception of certain laws. And such a faculty can be found only in rational beings. Now that which serves the will as the objective ground of its self-determination is the end, and, if this is assigned by reason alone, it must hold for all rational beings. On the other hand, That which merely contains the ground of possibility of the action, of which the effect is the end, this is called the means. The subjective ground of the desire is the spring. The objective ground of the volition is the motive. Hence the distinction between subjective ends, which rest on springs, and objective ends, which depend on motives valid for every rational being. Practical principles are formal when they abstract from all subjective ends, they are material when they assume these, and therefore particular springs of action. The ends which a rational being possesses to himself at pleasure as effects of his actions, material ends, are all only relative, for it is only their relation to the particular desires of the subject that gives them their worth which therefore cannot furnish principles universal and necessary for all rational beings and for every volition, that is to say practical laws. Hence, all these relative ends can give rise only to hypothetical imperatives. Supposing, however, that there were something whose existence has in itself an absolute worth, something which, being an end in itself, could be a source of definite laws, then in this and this alone would lie the source of a possible categorical imperative, i.e., a practical law. Now I say, man, and generally any rational being, exists as an end in himself, not merely as a means to be arbitrarily used by this or that will, but in all his actions, whether they concern himself or other rational beings, must be always regarded at the same time as an end. All objects of the inclinations have only a conditional worth, for if the inclinations and the wants founded on them did not exist, then their object would be without value. But the inclinations, themselves being sources of want, are so far from having an absolute worth for which they should be desired, that on the contrary it must be the universal wish of every rational being to be wholly free from them. Thus the worth of any object FOR WHICH IT IS TO BE ACQUIRED BY OUR ACTION IS ALWAYS CONDITIONAL. BEINGS WHOSE EXISTENCE DEPENDS NOT ONLY ON OUR WILL, BUT ON NATURE'S, HAVE NEVERTHELESS, IF THEY ARE IRRATIONAL BEINGS, ONLY A RELATIVE VALUE AS MEANS, AND ARE THEREFORE CALLED THINGS. RATIONAL BEINGS, ON THE CONTRARY, ARE CALLED PERSONS, BECAUSE THEIR VERY NATURE POINTS THEM OUT AS ENDS IN THEMSELVES that is, as something which must not be used merely as means, and so far, therefore, restricts freedom of actions, and is an object of respect. These, therefore, are not merely subjective ends whose existence has a worth for us as an effect of our action, but objective ends, that is, things whose existence is an end in itself, an end, moreover, for which no other can be substituted, which they should subserve merely as means, for otherwise nothing whatever would possess absolute worth. But if all worth were conditioned and therefore contingent, then there would be no supreme practical principle of reason whatever. If, then, there is a supreme practical principle, or, in respect of the human will, a categorical imperative, it must be one which, being drawn from the conception of that which is necessarily an end for everyone, because it is an end in itself, constitutes an objective principle of will, and can therefore serve as a universal practical law. The foundation of this principle is, rational nature exists as an end in itself. Man necessarily conceives his own existence as being so. So far, then, this is a subjective principle of human actions. But every other rational being regards its existence similarly, just on the same rational principle that holds for me. So that it is at the same time an objective principle from which as a supreme practical law all laws of the will must be capable of being deduced. Accordingly, the practical imperative will be as follows: So act as to treat humanity, whether in thine own person or in that of any other, in every case as an end withal, never as means only. We will now inquire whether this can be practically carried out. Footnote. This proposition is here stated as a postulate. The ground of it will be found in the concluding sections. End of footnote. To abide by the previous examples. Firstly, under the head of necessary duty to oneself, he who contemplates suicide should ask himself whether his action can be consistent with the idea of humanity as an end in itself. If he destroys himself in order to escape from painful circumstances, he uses a person merely as a mean to maintain a tolerable condition up to the end of life. But a man is not a thing. That is to say, something which can be used merely as means, but must in all his actions be always considered as an end in himself. I cannot, therefore, dispose in any way of a man in my own person so as to mutilate him, to damage or kill him. It belongs to ethics proper to define this principle more precisely, so as to avoid all misunderstanding, e.g., as to the amputation of the limbs in order to preserve myself, as to exposing my life to danger with a view to preserve it, etc. This question is therefore omitted here. Secondly, as regards necessary duties or those of strict obligation towards others, He who is thinking of making a lying promise to others will see at once that he would be using another man merely as a mean, without the latter containing at the same time the end in himself. For he whom I propose by such a promise to use for my own purposes cannot possibly assent to my mode of acting towards him, and, therefore, cannot himself contain the end of this action. This violation of the principle of humanity in other men is more obvious if we take in examples of attacks on the freedom and property of others. For then it is clear that he who transgresses the rights of men intends to use the person of others merely as a means, without considering that as rational beings they ought always to be esteemed also as ends, that is, as beings who must be capable of containing in themselves the end of the very same action footnote let it not be thought that the common quod tibi non vis fieri et could serve here as the rule or principle for it is only a deduction from the former though with several limitations it cannot be a universal law for it does not contain the principle of duties to oneself nor of the duties of benevolence to others for many a one would gladly consent that others should not benefit him, provided only that he might be excused from showing benevolence to them, nor, finally, that of duties of strict obligation to one another, for of this principle the criminal might argue against the judge who punishes him, and so on. End of footnote. Thirdly, as regards contingent, meritorious duties to oneself, It is not enough that the action does not violate humanity in our own person as an end in itself. It must also harmonize with it. Now there are in humanity capacities of greater perfection, which belong to the end that nature has in view in regard to humanity in ourselves as the subject. To neglect these might perhaps be consistent with the maintenance of humanity as an end in itself, but not with the advancement of this end. Fourthly as regards meritorious duties towards others, the natural end which all men have is their own happiness. Now humanity might indeed subsist, although no one should contribute anything to the happiness of others, provided he did not intentionally withdraw anything from it. But after all, this would only harmonize negatively, not positively, with humanity as an end in itself. If everyone does not also endeavor, as far as in him lies, To forward the ends of others. For the ends of any subject which is an end in himself ought as far as possible to be my ends also, if that conception is to have its full effect with me. This principle, that humanity and generally every rational nature is an end in itself, which is the supreme limiting condition of every man's freedom of action, is not borrowed from experience, firstly, because it is universal applying as it does to all rational beings whatever, and experience is not capable of determining anything about them. Secondly, because it does not present humanity as an end to men subjectively, that is, as an object which men do of themselves actually adopt as an end. But as an objective end, which must, as a law, constitute the supreme limiting condition of all our subjective ends, let them be what they will. It must therefore spring from pure reason. In fact, the objective principle of all practical legislation lies, according to the first principle, in the rule and its form of universality, which makes it capable of being a law, say, e.g., a law of nature. But the subjective principle is in the end, now by the second principle, the subject of all ends in each rational being, inasmuch as it is an end in itself hence follows from the third practical principle of the will which is the ultimate condition of its harmony with universal practical reason viz the idea of the will of every rational being as a universally legislative will on this principle all maxims are rejected which are inconsistent with the will being itself universal legislator thus the will is not subject simply to the law but so subject that it must be regarded as itself giving the law, and on this ground only subject to the law, of which it can regard itself as the author. In the previous imperatives, namely, that based on the conception of the conformity of actions to general laws, as in a physical system of nature, and that based on the universal prerogative of rational beings as ends in themselves, these imperatives, just because they were conceived as categorical, excluded from any share in their authority all admixture of all interest as a spring of action. They were, however, only assumed to be categorical, because such an assumption was necessary to explain the conception of duty. But we could not prove independently that there are practical propositions which command categorically, nor can it be proved in this section— one thing however could be done namely to indicate in the imperative itself by some determinate expression that in the case of volition from duty all interest is renounced which is the specific criterion of categorical as distinguished from hypothetical imperatives this is done in the present third formula of the principle namely in the idea of the will of every rational being as a universally legislating will. For although a will which is subject to laws may be attached to this law by means of an interest, yet a will which is itself a supreme lawgiver, so far as it is such, cannot possibly depend on any interest, since a will so dependent would itself still need another law restricting the interest of its self-love by the condition that it should be valid as a universal law thus the principle that every human will is a will which in all its maxims gives universal laws provided it be otherwise justified would be very well adapted to be the categorical imperative in this respect namely that just because of the idea of universal legislation it is not based on interest and therefore it alone among all possible imperatives can be unconditional or still better converting the proposition If there is a categorical imperative, i.e., a law for the will of every rational being, it can only command that everything be done from maxims of one's will, regarded as a will which could at the same time will that it should itself give universal laws. For in that case, only the practical principle and the imperative which it obeys are unconditional, since they cannot be based on any interest. Footnote I may be excused from adducing examples to elucidate this principle, as those which have already been used to elucidate the categorical imperative and its formula would all serve for like purpose here. End of footnote. End of section 3. Transition from popular moral philosophy to the metaphysic of morals, part 2. Recording by Alexandre Laplante.